Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Beyond Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is John Ray. John is a writer. His new book, Gone to the Wolves, is out now from FSG. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much for having me. How's life over in that writerly place of Brooklyn? <laughs> well, for me personally, it's rather exhausting because we're um, in the midst of potty training my two-and-a-half-year-old son. Um, so this should be an interesting conversation. I may be free associating to an alarming degree in the middle of our conversation. <laughs> yes, I've been through that with two, and yes, it can be challenging. Um, so yeah, it fun. sure is. This time around, this particular customer definitely has strong feelings about the process. <laughs> and so we were saying before we started recording that basically everybody around you is a writer at the moment. Yeah, we're living in. Um, you know, I've lived in this neighborhood for for a very long time. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I live not only in Brooklyn, but in Park Slope, which is sort of like probably has one of the highest concentrations of writers uh, of any neighborhood in New York City. So um, I often feel it would be more interesting to be a proctologist than to be a novelist in this neighborhood. You know, people might actually think that was something special if, if, if that were my line of work. I guess it's never too late. I guess so. That's true. You can always change career. Could be fun. Um, are there any I mean, che writers? Anton Chekhov was a, was a doctor. That's true. And wrote, you know, his wonderful shorts. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he was a proctologist, but that doesn't mean, you know, there's a first for everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, Conan Doyle was a GP as well. Mm-hmm. And William Carlos Williams, the great American poet, was, uh, was I think, a GP. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. And so was, I think, Celine spent some time as a doctor as well. What right, which is a very strange thought, mm. you know. I mean... If only his patients had known what was going on inside of his noggin. <laughs> All right. Um, you're the author of six novels, um, including Low Boy and The Lost Time Accidents, both of which I loved and, you know, read quite a while back. Thank you. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background and how you got into writing? Yeah, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a small town in, in uh, upstate New York near the Canadian border. And um, my mother was an immigrant. She was from Austria, from a small town in the Austrian Alps. And um, she was just a fanatical reader for my entire childhood. She would, you know, you could sense toward the end of dinner that she was getting a little bit restless, you know. Um, and uh, she just wanted to get into her pajamas and just, you know, start reading. She would, she would crawl into bed at 8.30 in the evening or something. And just, I mean, the amount that she read and the breadth of what she read, um, mostly in English, even though her first language was German, was it just really made an impression on me. And of course, she read to me a great deal. And um, 
we, we, when I was a little bit older, we read the entirety of the Lord of the Rings together, alternating chapters, you know, she would do one and I would do one. So it was just somehow a household in which, I mean, books were, books were kind of treasured. Um, that doesn't mean that I immediately thought that I was going to do that. You know, it took me a very long time to, I, I wasn't one of these people who felt anointed and destined to, to do anything creative. Um, I tried all sorts of, you know, courses of study in, in college and, uh, you know, I really did try many, many, many different things. And, and at some point, mid twenties, late twenties, I think I was forced to confront the fact that, that writing was the only thing I ever tried to do that people were in any way <laughs> receptive to. Mm. So, um, it was less a kind of finding my way than sort of, as I recall, a long series of sort of doors being closed, you know, oh, you're not going to be a rock star. You're not going to direct, you know, animated claymation stop motion features, you know, you're not going to be an anthropologist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're just, you're going to do this. And I was, I was happy to uh, finally settle into a, a course of action, but it was it was very much trial and error for me. So when you got to your first book, how long had you been trying to write for? Well, I sort of, I had been dabbling for a long time, probably since I was about 10 or 11, but I had not been trying to write seriously. Mm, I began trying to write poetry and uh, I did that for a few years, you know, midway through college until a few years after college. Um, but then I was probably about uh, 24 years old, 25, when I when I first tried to write, you know, a novel, which was um, a total disaster. And, and, you know, a few people who cared about me and were willing to like, give me the straight dope informed me that that I was, you know, this was not. This was not the one. So then I, I abandoned that novel. And um, I, I think my, my set, my, the first novel of mine that was published was the second novel that I tried to write. Um, so I don't know. I was probably three or four years into trying to write fiction when I started the novel that ended up being uh, The Right Hand of Sleep, which was my first published book. It took a while. Well, okay. And that was then very slow going. That was not a swift process of writing that book. That was... Uh, four solid years of daily um, drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to your brilliant new book, Gone to the Wolves. It's something of a coming-of-age novel set against a backdrop of heavy metal music scene in the 80s and 90s. And the novel yeah. centres around three central characters living in Florida at the beginning of the novel. We've got Kip, Kira, and an older man, Leslie. Do you want to tell us a bit about the setup of the book and your three central characters? Yeah, I mean, the three central characters are really are the setup for me. Um, it's about this sort of triangular friendship with all sorts of complicated currents coursing back and forth between these three people. Um, you have uh, Kip Norvald, who's sort of our stand in, you know, our, our de facto protagonist, from whose point of view we sort of experience this crazy world of the metal underground. Um, and he's just sort of a... a somewhat nerdy kind of shy character who doesn't really he's not particularly cool you know um but has these occasional 
very surprising, uncharacteristic fits of um, of rage and dissociation, I suppose you could say. Um, and then there's a character named Leslie, who is Kip's kind of guide, sort of his Virgil through the underworld of of, of heavy metal, um, and who is himself a real oddball in the context of um, of that culture because he's black, because he's bisexual, because he's very flamboyant in the way he carries on and the way he dresses. And, but he's also extremely confident, which is kind of what magically saves him from, from trouble in a way. Um, and then they both kind of meet and, be, and in their own different ways become sort of um, smitten with, and, and just, just kind of, they, they fall under the spell of this slightly older teenager, this, this um, girl named Kira, who um, is just a little cooler than they are and a little wilder than they are, um, and perhaps a bit more troubled than they are. Uh, but they've, they've all come from sort of bad backgrounds, you know, bad families, some, some, some trauma. And they find their way to one another because they all, they kind of all, they, they simultaneously find their way to each other and find themselves and their identities as fans of this very particular kind of extreme underground uh, metal that um, was kind of born in small town uh, Gulf Coast, Florida um, in, in the late 80s when the book begins. And um, it's a very, very, very um, particular kind of almost hermetically sealed off world with its own language and its own iconography and its own um, obviously system of values. Um, and uh, they kind of discover a community there that shelters them and nourish, nurtures them um, and is not nearly as scary. I mean, in a way it's the opposite of intimidating once they find their place in it. Uh, and from there, they, they eventually leave Florida and move to Los Angeles um, and kind of try to make it as adults and find an apartment and get jobs. And, and, you know, two of them begin a relationship that kind of has its problems. And then the book ends up, it's divided into three sections. And the final section um, takes place in Norway in the winter um, in, uh, of uh, 1991. And um, um, is, a, is a very different in tone. Um, Kira has disappeared uh, uh, almost two years earlier and Kip and Leslie are trying to find her. Um, they have no particular interest in going to Norway in the middle of an incredibly black, dark, freezing winter, but they've heard rumors that she's fallen in with some questionable company in Norway. So at the end of the book, um, it almost takes on some qualities of the thriller, I suppose. They're, they're trying to find their friend and kind of extract her from a very dangerous situation yeah it, it kind of starts out as almost a road trip novel and then yeah, yeah. and it ends up as almost a thriller one mm -hmm. of the things i guess that i wanted to ask you about and clearly this is a passion of yours is this heavy metal scene and this underground of it as well and that subculture that goes with that kind of scene do you want to tell us about your fascination with that genre and also that particular period that late 90s late 80s early 90s yeah. Well, at some point early on in writing the book, I decided that I would give Kip um, our um, 
our humble hero, if you will, uh, my exact birth date. So he's exactly the same age as I am. Um, and so that determined, of course, what I was going to be writing about. And that led me to these this sort of musical subculture that was important to me for a time when I was a teenager and, and, and a little bit later. Um, it just sort of, when I knew that I was going to write a novel about young people in these out of the way, backwards, swampy parts of Florida that people don't usually go to, uh, where things get pretty crazy and pretty and pretty wild. Um, the musical aspect of things kind of came from came out of that because, oddly enough, um, small town Gulf Coast Florida was really the kind of epicenter of what came to be known as the sort of death metal um, explosion, which really was as as non-commercial and hard to listen to as a lot of the music is it's very scary music it was hugely profitable and, and successful globally for for just a, a few brief years it had a real sort of fluorescence and then it went away you know but these were bands that that i'm sure you've never heard of and that most people have never heard of and yet they sold half a million copies of their records you know uh and and you know to places as far flung as um, you know, South Korea and Finland and, um, you know, Bangladesh. I mean, this was a global thing that was completely under the radar because mainstream sort of culture and, and media was just um, just not interested in it or not aware of it. So it's, it's, it was a really kind of fertile topic to explore. It was fertile ground to 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 try to work into a, a novel and, and, to, and to sort of fictionalize. Um, there, there really hasn't been a novel about, um, about metal in that time uh, that I, that I can find or that, you know, that anyone at FSG, my publisher has heard of. Mm -hmm. So that's both exciting and, and a little bit, you know, one feels a certain responsibility to not misrepresent things or, or reduce things or simplify things too much. I think one of the really great selling points of this book is it does do both because I'm sure for heavy metal fans and death metal fans, this will read really, really well. But for me, who is somebody who knows a bit about the genre, but not very much, like yeah. I still love this book. Like I still thought it was just a, a brilliant take on that coming of age kind of road story um, with this oh, really great. cool thriller aspect that, you know, goes places I didn't think it would. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to try and have things go in an unexpected direction especially in towards you know in the last third or or mm. you know the the closing chapters of a, of a novel i think that's i think that's nice um uh yeah i mean the book isn't really written for heavy metal fans necessarily um there there is this balance that that i was trying to achieve you know as you said i didn't want to disappoint people who were well versed in this world but you know in the same way that an author might decide to write about, um, you know, to write about uh, the Prague Spring or to mm -hmm. write about um, apartheid South Africa or, um, you know, anthropologists working in the Amazon basin. Um, one doesn't need to know about the Amazon to want to read about the Amazon, you know, and, and I really wanted this book to be completely accessible to 
someone who perhaps disliked heavy metal, you know, but still found themselves a little bit curious about what that what that culture might have been like, you know. And I, I think that everyone can to some degree relate to books, a book about first love and um, finding one's identity in an unlikely community and kind of escaping from a small town. Uh, you know, there are, there are certain fairly, you know, readily intelligible uh, uh, themes in the book or, or subjects. Um, and But then it happens to be set in a very, for most people, I think, um, strange and outlandish kind of culture. Mm. I do want to ask you, uh, at the end of this novel, obviously we end up in, in Norway and, you know, they do have a bit of a trip through Europe. But I'm really curious yeah. about the fact that this kind of music seems to have just gone mental in in Scandinavia and also Germany, I think, but but Scandinavia seems to have just loved this music. Do you have any sense of why that might be? Uh, it was huge in Eastern Europe as well. And um, my wife is from Mexico and uh, in Mexico and Latin America, it's also still very much uh, a very vital um, uh, culture, more so perhaps than in the United States now. Um, I don't quite know why it became such a force in Scandinavia. I mean, um, the Scandinavian bands, uh, that, that, that came out of, um, what came later to be known as the black metal, uh, scene in, in Oslo and Bergen, Norway, and looked to lesser degree in Sweden, they sort of did what, um, it was a little bit like Japan. It was a little bit like like punk rock in Japan or something. You know, they 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 saw something they liked and it was interesting and that spoke to them. But then they also completely changed it by you know they metabolized it and what came out bore a kind of superficial similarity to maybe some American scary American death metal bands or I don't know Slayer even or something like that, but was also completely particular and kind of endemic to to Norway and um, end up being even darker and even kind of frostier and more depressed sounding. And, you know, I mean, it, it was actually part of their artistic aim to create extremely depressing and depressed sounding music, which is not usually something I think that most rock or pop musicians aspire to, you know, but calling something depressing in that scene was actually very high praise, you know. Um, I mean, a, an easy answer would be, you know, the, the darkness of the winters there and the prevalence of, of, you know, a certain kind of approach to heavy drinking and so on. But the Norwegians that I spoke to about this, and I did, I spent some time in Norway researching, um, they actually said exactly the opposite. They said most people in Norway are so well adjusted and so conservative. They all go to, there's a national church in Norway, a na essentially a national religion. And everyone just goes there, whether they really believe or not. And it's, it's very uniform and very homogenous and nothing much ever really happens. And everyone's kind of doing okay. And that, according to them, is what they were reacting against. Not what we imagine Norway to be like, this forbidding, grim place. But in fact, they were reacting against these sort of very bourgeois comforts that were everywhere. Uh, and that, very, that really surprised me when, when, I, you know, when I learned that. And um, it was very helpful then in writing the Norway section of the book. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the research that you undertook for this book, because it seems really, obviously you're passionate about this topic, but it seems really well researched at the same time. Well, you always want to, you know, if you've, if you've chosen the right thing to write about for you, in other words, if you've really hit on what, hit on something that, that, that interests you truly, and that's not any kind of, it's not aspirational in any way. You're not thinking, oh, I have, I need to write about, you know, Donald Trump, because that's what people are interested in hearing about. Um, one of the ways that you'll know that you've hit on the right subject for you at this moment in your life is that the research won't even feel like research. It'll just feel like kind of compulsive reading about something you really want to know about. You know, um, when I was writing my novel, Low Boy, that you mentioned, um, which focuses on a, on a teenage kid who is suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, um, I just couldn't read enough books about mental illness and psychosis in particular and schizophrenia in particular. It just, I became more and more fascinated by it as I, as I did more research, not kind of, not ever sort of tired of it. Um, and that's when I knew that I picked a good topic for me to write about. Um, so really it's more just, you know, the way that anyone would want to read more about a topic that they find uh, compelling. With this book, I'm curious uh, if there is a soundtrack to the book. Is there like a Spotify soundtrack that we can listen to? There are a few, um, you know, obviously a book about music and, and particularly a book about music that most people that familiar with. Um, I mean, it, it almost demands playlists. And um, I just I just did one playlist for um, a very fun and longstanding um, literature website in the United States called Large Hearted Boy. Um, uh, and I think it's just largeheartedboy.com. Uh, and so anyone can check that out. And I wrote a little bit about each song and why I liked it or why it seemed to fit. And then I, um, when this book was kind of in the works at, at, at FSG, my publisher, um, I was asked to, to sort of make a playlist just for people in-house uh, who might have no idea about heavy metal or be actively turned off by heavy metal, you know? So that was a very different kind of playlist. That was sort of like a, no, it's okay. This can be fun music, you know, more of an introductory kind of um, thing. And I, that may be floating around uh, Spotify or Bandcamp somewhere, um, but I, I'm not sure about that. I think the Large Hearted Boy playlist would be, would be the, the, the one to listen to. Brilliant. Okay, I'll give it a listen for sure. With your central characters, I, I'm always curious about asking authors about this because I I don't know about you, but I'm sure you did, but I certainly got very involved with these characters and and like quite a few of your previous books, I think like kind of want to know what happens to them next. Are they yeah. characters you'd ever want to revisit? I've never, ever done that um, in part because, not because the idea doesn't, in theory appeal to me, but um, it takes me so long to write, a, to finish a book. And um, by the end of it, I feel really exhausted and I feel open to any, any course of action other than revisiting what I had just written about, you know? Um, but I'm very fond of these characters, um, the principal three characters in particular. Um, so I suppose, I suppose I could. The only other thing would be, you know, 
there are some very wild events that happen in to these characters in this book. And I always thought of it as sort of like, these are the craziest, most intense, most high stakes things that will ever happen to these people in their lives. You know, the rest of their lives will probably be more or less like, like anyone else's life would be, you know, I mean, they, they settle down and they grow up in their, in their way. Um, so then that would be a totally different book. It would have a different mm. um, tenor to it. You know, it would be a, a quieter, more. Yeah. They're, they're all sitting down to Michael Buble. Yeah. <laughs> right. Actually <laughs> writing about I... that, writing about the Michael Buble underground. Yeah. Uh, somehow has less appeal to me. You're right. I just talked myself out of it. You just, I, I can just imagine. Although he, I'm sure he, I'm sure that man has a wild and probably hair raising secret life. <laughs> he's, he's got a collection of like, uh, 50 year old ladies underpants in his top drawer. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. All that's, right. that's probably true. And it's probably quite extensive. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. After this book, um, do you go straight back to writing? And if so, what are you working on next? Normally I do. I normally, again, because it, I, you know, I take anywhere from three to good God, I took almost eight years for one book. Um, gives me the, gives me the creeps and the horrors to think about that now, but it did happen. Um, usually I have at least two or three ideas floating around in my head that I'm impatient to sort of try out by the time I'm finally done with the book, you know. Um, this time around, uh, because my son is still quite young and for various other reasons, I'm not really ready to, to start on another one. I have, I have three or four possible ideas, but um, I can't quite seem to choose between them and try to figure out which one I want to do. And also the, uh, the older I, I get, the more I realize that time is, of course, a finite commodity. And um, it makes me a little bit, when I was, was starting out, I, I didn't really hesitate much. I would jump into a new book and just think, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll work out until it's, I'll write at it and revise it and work at it, pick away at it until it works. And then I'll just move on to the next thing. I had this idea that almost any idea was good enough to start a novel, you know, and it did cause me to to waste a little bit of time abandoning projects and, 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 you know, trying to fix books that were unfixable. So I'm kind of just sort of don't rush in, give it some thought, really mull it over and, and be pretty certain that there's something there that can carry you through years of, of, of labor, uh, before you commit. Um, so yeah, right now I haven't really decided. Let's talk about your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? Well, I mentioned The Lord of the Rings, reading that with my mom. Um, before that, I think, and more important for me, in that I continue to recognize it in my own writing, popping up here and there, uh, was um, uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, especially through Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. Because um, it's a little darker and a little sadder in a way than than the first Alice book. That really, you know, that's been that's in my brain, in my neurons somehow, and um, I still read it with pleasure at least once a year. Um, well, other books that were important to me. There is a um, 
a collection of short stories that are that are linked short stories um, by an author named Sherwood Anderson that were um, very important to the sort of American modernist novelists. Um, he was sort of a hero of Hemingway and, and, and Faulkner and, and um, of Flannery O'Connor as well. Um, and he, it, it's this little book called Winesburg, Ohio, um, that I was made to read in high school. Um, that had a huge effect on me. I'm not even exactly sure why, but the first few stories are very odd, but very real, very kind of realistic, and yet with a touch of the strangeness to them, which might just be the strangeness of people living in a small town. Then, you know, sort of then came this period of time where I was reading all of the big sort of canonized modernist authors, you know, a lot of Faulkner and, and so on. Um, although I, I sort of preferred Flannery O'Connor to um, to Faulkner, even though I'm not a short story writer. Um, and then I went backwards from Flannery O'Connor to Anton Chekhov and read a lot of Chekhov. And then I read, you know, the brothers Karamazov and a lot of Russian writers. None of those people, except maybe Sherwood Anderson, are influences that I recognize in my own writing now. But everything you read isn't automatically just directly funneled into one's later work at all. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, when I was in college, I became really obsessed with William S. Burroughs, and I read almost everything that he wrote, which is a lot. Um, it's sort of like one big mega novel, actually. You could just you could really kind of pack it all into one book and it would it would hold hold together or not, you know, in the way that his writing doesn't always hold together. Mm. Um well Lowboy had a lot of Burroughs influence, didn't it? Maybe, maybe. I would like to think so. It wasn't mm. really someone I was thinking about at the time, but but uh, I'm happy if 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 that's something people would see. Yeah, I certainly thought so. I thought it was very really? Burroughs. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and all through that time, I was reading a lot of hardboiled detective fiction and a mm. lot of, um, yeah, just a lot of what I guess what you'd call crime fiction, which is something I still read with with great pleasure um, and admiration for the kind of economy and and functionality of the style of read really good crime fiction and genre fiction in general, quote unquote genre fiction. Mm. Um, that's important to me. Uh, Definitely. Um, and then more recently, um, been reading just a lot of Latin American fiction, um, a, a great amount of sort of short Latin American novels, you know, in the Spanish speaking world. I'm not sure about Spain, but in, in the rest of the Spanish speaking world, you can call things a novel that would be, you know, at, at most a novella in, mm. in the U.S., um, and that was has been very useful to me to sort of show me that, you know, you don't have to only be a maximalist. You don't, you know, a novel is not kind of defined by its heft or anything, you know, and, and how much you can do with with relatively little uh, in terms of in terms of, you know, word count, I suppose you could say. So I've been reading a lot of people uh, like Cesar Ayra mm -hmm. and um, Alejandro Zambra and Valeria Luiselli and um just there's just so much exciting, wonderful Latin American fiction that's that's um, now sort of getting its due, I think. And and um, we've moved beyond this idea that Latin American fiction is 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 still like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or yeah. something, you know, because mm. there's so much more out there.
Absolutely. All right. Well, talking about that, what books are you currently reading or have you recently enjoyed or are you looking forward to? I'm one of these people and it's just something I, I, it's a guilty pleasure of mine, I suppose, to read multiple books at, at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I'm always reading anywhere from three to maybe eight books at the same time. And I'll just like say, oh, what do I feel like right now? Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like, which of these albums would I like to play? And it has its it has its drawbacks because sometimes, you know, I really can't remember what was going on when mm-hmm. I finally get back from to book one in the series. But um, right now I'm reading um, a um, a crime novel. I'm reading um, Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, who is the author yeah. of Sounds of the Lambs. It's a great um, book. I'm enjoying that one. I've I've only yeah. recently begun it, but I'm really enjoying it. Mm. I'm reading a memoir by a very famous 60s and 70s uh, so-called groupie, Pamela DeBar. Um, it's a uh, a really, really fun and actually very well-written book called I'm With the Band. Um, I am also reading um, or, or, or rereading The Wind in the Willows to my son. Um, and um, I've been reading a, an enormous book called La Capitale, which is just the, it's, the subtitle is The Biography of Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And um, because to me, Mexico City is the most fascinating. Uh, this book is just amazing. It begins in prehistory and it ends about 10 years ago. And it covers so many jaw-dropping, unbelievable events in the history of, 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 you know, the oldest sort of continually operating city in that half of the planet. Um, I can't recommend it too highly. It's called La Capital, A Biography of Mexico City. Um, and the author's name, Candel. Candel is his last name. I'm terrible with authors' names, which is also very shameful for an author to not remember other authors' names. I feel like a like a cad. <laughs> Are there some books coming out uh, this year that you're looking forward to reading? Um, yes, there are. Well, well, I was. There are some books that have just come out that I haven't read yet mm-hmm. that I'm very much looking forward to reading, like. Um, uh Catherine Lacey's novel The Biography, Biography of X. X. Yeah. Um and um I haven't yet read the novel that won just won the Pulitzer Prize, uh Trust by Hernan Diaz, um, who has a wonderful name because he sounds like one of the conquistadors who conquered mm-hmm. Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um it's actually a combination of Hernan Cortez, who was the um, the you know the the person who conquered mm-hmm. Mexico yeah. in, in killed Montezuma mm. uh, and um, Porfirio Diaz, who was a, you know, Mexico's most famous dictator. So I love this. I love his name. And I'm, mm. I'm sure just based on that, the book will be great. We'll take a quick break here on Me on the Zero. We're speaking with John Ray. This episode is brought to you by my interview with reclusive author, God. Here's a sneak peek. 
So we all know that your two first books were major hits. Why haven't we seen a follow-up novel? Well, Ben, that's a bit complicated. Basically, my agent was a cunt. I have not received any royalties from the sale of the Bible at all. He just said I didn't exist. Fucking atheists. Anyway, fuck him. I'm hoping to write a great novel with Martin Amos. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for John's Desert Island Books. Okay, Desert Island Books. Well, I would have to take Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass because that book just makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably take um, a fantasy novel called Islandia um, that was published, I believe, in the 20s. It was a kind of semi-forgotten, enormous... I mean, in part, I would take it because it's so long and it really, in terms of world building, it, it's... It does an amazing job. And that's, of course, what every fantasy author uh, aspires to do. Um, so I would take that book. I would take the collected short stories of Anton Chekhov, um, which is maybe a boring answer, but I really, I mean, that really does it for me. I would take a book called um, The Palm Wine Drinkard by Amos Tutuola, who's a Nigerian author um, who has, I guess he has sort of a cult following, but he was mostly writing I think in the 50s, 60s, um, I would take, oh, I have a book that's it's like a big, thick anthology of, it's five or six novels by Ross MacDonald, who's a noir uh, crime fiction author, uh, again, of the, the 50s, I guess, 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, 60s. Um, Maybe that's cheating because that's a bunch of novels all rolled into one, but you, you'll probably have a lot of time to kill if you're on a desert island. Right. Um, I would take, you know, a book that I just really loved that I read recently um, that I guess a lot of people loved, but uh, I thought was just so extraordinary was uh, Lincoln in the Bardo by George mm-hmm. Saunders. Um, that's just a remarkable, amazing book that I would love to reread a few times, if only to figure out how he did it. Um, and I would take, um, you know, one of my, one of my all time favorite writers, uh, is actually Australian by birth, uh, Shirley Hazard. Mm. Um, I, I just, I've always loved her writing from the first time I encountered it. The only question there would be which Shirley Hazard novel should I take? And I would probably end up taking, uh, what I think is her masterpiece, which is a, a novel called The Transit of Venus. Mm. that came out, I believe, in the early 80s. That's just a a very strange and unbelievably virtuosic book that um, is kind of flawless, even though it's also really bizarre. Mm. Um, I don't know. How many do I have left? Not sure. You can take a few more. That was a chunk. That was quite a few. All right, I'm going to pick pick two more. Um, I would take A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. Um, because I can read that. I can really begin and then read it and start at the beginning again. And, you know, I could probably do that 50 times and it wouldn't, you know, just, just the, the, if you're talking, just talking about language, um, I, I, I don't, I just couldn't even imagine a better, a better 
novel than that. And then maybe for fun, I would take um, I Am Ozzy, which is Ozzy Osbourne's autobiography. Um, that is probably, honestly, if I was really not trying to impress anybody here, if I'm just talking about a book that gave me the absolute maximum amount of pleasure per instant spent reading it, I, I do think that I Am Ozzy uh, might, might top the list. It is wow. absolute joy. It is so funny and so weird and so kind of life affirming in a way, which is not what one would expect from Ozzy Osbourne, but that's, that is the result. Interesting. Okay. I've never read it, but I might have to. It has a hideous cover. It looks like the kind of book you would never want to read. I think he has like a fur coat and purple sunglasses on or something <laughs> like that. It, don't look at the cover. Tear the cover off and then just read it, you know. Yeah, put it in, in a bathroom brown where no one can bag. see you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Read it somewhere where no one can see you, like in the in the, uh, in the the WC. Done. Okay. Well, thank you so much for chatting books with me. And um, Thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yeah. Well, congratulations on this book. Uh, before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can catch up with you online and where we can go and buy not only this brilliant book, but all your other books, but Gone to the Wolves, uh, is just great. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, my website is is just uh, www.johnray.net. And I'm on Instagram. Uh, uh, the, I think it, I somehow managed to get the John Ray as my handle, which sounds inherently arrogant <laughs> and, and uh, narcissistic, but it was better than John Ray 45678. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Excellent. And where can we go get the book? Uh, I mean, um, I suppose any, any sort of online bookseller would be the best bet right now. Cause I'm not sure that it's, it's out in Australia yet. So um, um, I would, I would encourage people to avoid Amazon if they can, but um, you know, no judgments. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, it's been a thank pleasure you. talking with you. Thank you. Now you have a whole day in front of you. I have to go change my kids' diapers. Yes. Well, enjoy potty training. It's a joy. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really going to try and um, enjoy it insofar as that is possible, which <laughs> may be very difficult, but I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> Thanks once again to John Ray. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod. And you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon. Fuck my life. Rolf Harris has just arrived with his fucking mobile border. Be gone!